the final countdown. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. As the summer draws to a close, we want to turn our attention to some of the topics our senior members will be teaching in the fall. ICS will continue to make its courses available online throughout our regular fall semester in a weekly, in-depth, virtual seminar format. So even if you're not in Toronto, you could take an ICS course for credit toward your degree or out of sheer personal interest. The semester begins the week of September 14th, so over the next few weeks, we'll be talking to our senior members about the kinds of conversations you could have if you were to take one of those courses for yourself. Today, we have Nick Ansel back on the podcast. He will be teaching two courses this semester, and he'll be telling us about one of them, a course called Facing the Darkness, The Human Nature of Evil. So here's Nick. Critical Faith, we've spent the summer inviting our senior members and course leaders to introduce us to some of their current online courses. For the next few weeks, as we approach the fall and continue to make ICS classes available online, we want to keep the snapshots coming, this time highlighting our fall course offerings. So today we're joined by Nick Ansel, ICS senior member in theology. Nick will be teaching two courses online this semester. On Monday evenings, he'll be teaching his Biblical Foundations course, and on Thursday afternoons, he'll be teaching the course that provides the topic of today's conversation. That course is Facing the Darkness, the brackets, Human Nature of Evil. So welcome, Nick. It's good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, So you have taught this Facing the Darkness course before. Um, so we just want to hear from you a bit of the background to the course itself, what questions it answers for you and where it comes from, why you're interested in the topic, uh, anything you might find relevant to framing what this course has to offer. Right. What's behind it? There's so many different dimensions for me to that 
question. I mean, there's sort of some immediate existential things that come to mind. And then there are some ongoing theoretical questions that I have in this area. But the theoretical questions themselves are so connected to existential struggles and so forth. So I wouldn't want to put those into different categories. I'll start with the title and just say why this particular title. So facing the darkness, I'm trying to invite us to face certain dimensions to this question that tend to get screened out in a lot of the discussions in the arena of theology. And also uh, this is discussed in philosophy of religion as well around the topic, the questions of uh, what's normally called theodicy. And the subtitle, which is the human nature of evil with the word human in brackets, is the nature of evil, but it's also the human nature of evil. And it's got the phrase human nature in there as well. What's the connection between human nature and evil? Is evil of a human nature or is it an extra human reality in some way? A traditional Christian answer to the um, the challenge of evil is to try and root the nature of evil and the origin of evil not only in the idea of a fall away from grace which is narrated at the beginning of the scriptures but a particular reading of of the fall narrative and the, the traditional reading involves a prior fall of the angels and of the Satan and, and so forth. So in that traditional picture, you have a fall before the fall and human beings decide through a misuse of their freedom, perhaps that's often the way it's interpreted, to align themselves with this prior fall. And I'd long been extremely uneasy with that interpretation of Genesis. So back in uh, 2001, I published an article. It's called The Call of Wisdom, The Voice of the Serpent. And the subtitle is A Canonical Approach to the Tree of Knowledge. And it's basically a rereading of the fall narrative. In that original article, I propose an alternative reading of the fall narrative, which makes human beings very central. And I say that the break in the covenant comes through human beings not through the serpent, and the whole of creation gets pulled into the vortex of that broken relationship and the loss that, that comes with that. So that was the original article. I discuss a number of other things as well. So that's still very much part of the course, and it's something that we read early on. But that article, I published that 20 years ago. And since then, in my research, I've found a lot of additional biblical evidence to support that approach. So I, I'm keen to bring that to the table. But also, I've changed my, um, my interpretation in certain ways. So I can still say everything that I said in the original article, sometimes with different language. But there are other dimensions that I'm now very keen to explore. And in particular, I actually see loss of wisdom as actually being the, the initial impact. And it's very interesting in Genesis itself that sin as an idea 
is not mentioned in Genesis 3 at all. It's not until Genesis 4, which is the um, narrative about Cain, that you have the category of sin. And so that, that's something that's interesting, that, that sin should not be playing the central or primordial role in our understanding of the fall that it has done. There are other categories that, that we need to start with. And loss of wisdom is something that I've been exploring. And it's, that's very much a natural development, development of the original article because wisdom categories are quite central there. I've kind of gone to town on wisdom ever since really. More existentially, for me existentially, is the, the relationship between being a victim of evil and being an agent of evil. It makes sense to um, have a good look at that in terms of if you're looking at yourself and how you get caught up in what's gone awry in the world. It's um, if you're on the receiving end of ill treatment, you have to find a way that you don't perpetrate that ill treatment on others because the mechanisms of the, of the repetition albeit normally a non-identical repetition, is connected to the subtle ways in which we internalize evil and we perpetrate it on others. And um, so the victim-agent um, correlation is, I think, extremely important. So I don't just look at uh, theological literature in the course. We're, we also have a look at um, some of the work that psychologists have done. And um, I've, over the years, found it very helpful to look at a contrast between a book by uh, Scott Peck, which is called The People of the Lie, which does tend to emphasize autonomous agency rooted in free will and people doing evil for the hell of it. It tends to go in that direction. And to contrast that with um, the work of Alice Miller, who um, has a book called uh, For Your Own Good, which then the subtitle is about looking at the hidden roots, the roots of evil. So she tends to emphasize the victim side. So if you're a victim of evil, then there's the problem of what she calls the, the repetition syndrome. So victims of evil often repeat what they've been subjected to. And we need to find a way to break the repetition. And not everybody can break the repetition. So it's how to do justice to the victim side and the agent side, how they are intimately connected, how that they are irreducible to each other as well, and, and so on and so forth. So the kind of the victim agent dynamics in evil um, allow us to really face the darkness in ourselves, I think. Yeah, I like this idea that you mentioned about uh, kind of cycles of repetition of evil and like non-identical repetition and the idea that uh, the cycles can expand upon an original evil of a kind. And I know uh, before we were recording, you had mentioned to me that along with these kind of two main themes that you've just outlined for us, that Fear also plays or will play a central role as a theme in this course. 
So I'm wondering if you could maybe explain a bit more what you mean by that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, One of the reasons I'm interested in exploring the category of fear is that in re-examining the fall narrative, I've been struck by the fact that fear plays an important role. Let me put it like this. As soon as the fall happens, Adam and Eve are afraid. Now, it's interesting to ask the question, when exactly does the fall happen? Is it all concentrated in one particular moment? And that's the moment of, see, traditionally that would be disobedience. It would be listening to the voice of temptation from the serpent and deciding to be tempted. Can we say, okay, that's the moment of the fall? Well, yes, but I, th- I think there are a number of pivotal moments. I'm not sure that there's just one. But um, they break this covenant, and God shows up, and they're afraid. And then they get into denial. Now, you could say, well, maybe the fall actually happens in the moment of denial. But the problems become compounded because there is then the fear, there is the denial, and then we move on to um, another layer to the dynamic, to the narrative of the fall with Cain and Abel, where you get murder and you get the first reference to sin. So I just say all of that in terms of um, possibly Adam and Eve could have responded to their fear differently when, when God shows up in the, in the evening breeze. Uh, and they're afraid. And again, there is a traditional reading of that fear. So we probably have a tendency to think, well, Adam and Eve are afraid because they're guilty and they should be afraid of God, right? Because they've fallen into sin. The narrative may not actually be trying to say that in particular at all. It may be saying that if you break covenant, you lose your connection with wisdom. And without wisdom, the good creation becomes a frightening place in certain respects. Because the goodness of creation includes wildness as well as more domestic kind of features. Now, I don't take the primordial wildness to be talking about primordial evil. So with the loss of wisdom for Adam and Eve, fear is a natural and an appropriate response. And the way beyond fear is to find wisdom again, which is found in covenant with God and in covenant with creation. It's hearing the voice of creation as the voice of God, hearing the voice of God as the voice of creation, in such a way that you can find your way through the wildness and the challenge, and you can find life rather than death. That is what wisdom is. And um, there's some interesting literature that I've come across about the nature of fear and its impact. And I do think that this can change the conversation in in theology and philosophy of religion around the nature of evil and the challenge of evil. 
Yeah. So actually what you've just said sparked something for me. It seems that a lot of what you're wanting to do is to kind of expand this conversation to nuance and redefine a lot of things and finding ways forward for what may have gotten taken for granted in a lot of readings of evil and wisdom and the fall and such. So I wonder why, what's at stake in still talking about evil rather than changing the term itself. So talking about like bad or wrong or some other thing, like what's, what's in maintaining the word evil for you? That's, that is a great question. A number of the discussions around the nature of evil do actually conflate evil with bad. And there are some pretty direct consequences with, you know, that kind of, I think it's a reduction, a serious reductionism. So if I can put it like this, if I'm fairly good at playing soccer, but only fairly good, there are going to be things that I'm relatively bad at. I might be quite good at tackling, but in being good at tackling, I may not be very good at other things. But I'm, I'm relatively bad at soccer. I mean, and compared with a professional soccer player, I'm really bad. And the fact that they are ex- extremely good means that in comparison, I really am bad. Now, that's the distinction between good and bad. But the distinction between good and evil is a different distinction. So that evil and bad often coincide, but they're not the same thing. So you can imagine a good creation in which there's relative good and relative bad, but the relative bad is itself not evil. It's something that we negotiate wisely, and it's not a problem. We just have to be wise about it. A certain person is not that good at playing defense at soccer, but they're pretty good if they are, if they play in goal or something like that. And you just negotiate that in terms of different strengths and weaknesses, uh, which the strength and weakness could be a different vocabulary for good and bad um, in that instance. And then there are other theodicies that um, play down the reality of evil, but they do it in subtle ways. So John Hick, he uh, emphasizes that God has created a world of challenge, which is dangerous. And uh, it's an arena for human maturity happening. So life is a challenge. It's a struggle. But what God wants is for us to become mature. And in the process, we face all kinds of dangers and we, we, we encounter suffering. So evil then gets associated with all forms of suffering. Now, with all of these positions, there's, a, there's an element of truth, but it's... Um, you can question some of the basic assumptions. So if evil is simply necessary in order to provide a kind of challenging environment, then it's not really evil because it's necessary. So you're justifying it for the sake of a greater good. And innocent suffering is in a different category from other forms of suffering that are willingly chosen for a a particular purpose. And it's in innocent suffering that evil shows up. So God has created a world with a certain environment that we have to 
embrace life as a struggle and come to maturity. That's all fine. I would accept that. But if you build evil into that, um, that means that innocent suffering becomes collateral damage in the way God has set up the universe. So the evil itself is not reducible to suffering. It's not reducible to bad rather than good. It's not reducible to weakness rather than strength. It's not reducible to immaturity rather than maturity. You see, um, there are many variations on that way of thinking. And what they do is they refuse to take evil seriously because evil is destructive. If evil is to be accepted as evil, we need that strong category. Otherwise, we, we will commit atrocities in our thinking as well as our actions, probably, by justifying the abominations and the atrocities of, of history, which always involve innocent suffering. If it leads to the greater good at the cost of the suffering of the innocent, that is a greater good I am not interested in. And this is the moment of, you know, the brothers Karamazov and handing back the card and so forth. So that is the, the protest against the Theodicy project, because we should protest evil and not be trying to ultimately explain it away. Great. Well, thank you. Obviously, this is a huge topic, um, and I'm sure you'll have plenty to say during your 13 weeks of class. So um, you've already mentioned as well kind of a couple of resources that you've been reading along your way as you think through this for yourself. I'm wondering if you could maybe briefly leave us with one or two resources that you think would be helpful for people, you know, potential students uh, as they maybe start out thinking more deeply about these topics. Yeah, thanks. So I mentioned the article that I wrote, which is in the Christian Scholars Review in 2001, The Call of Wisdom, The Voice of the Serpent. That's, that's a possibility if you wanted to get a taste of that. And then the book Encountering Evil, edited by Stephen Davis, and that's the roundtable discussion with a number of important philosophers of religion. The one I hadn't mentioned so far is D.Z. Phillips, who is uh, part of the conversation in the second edition. So look for the second edition of that. The Psychological Literature, The People of the Lie by uh, Scott Peck, and For Your Own Good by Alice Miller. They're you know, great books to read from cover to cover if you want to, to do that. And I'm going to mention um, a book that I've come across more recently on the topic of fear, and I don't think that this is a widely known book. I seem to come across it by chance. This book is published by the Central European U University Press. And it's called Fears and Symbols. And the author, his name is Elamere Hankis, H-A-N-K-I-S-S. And he is, or was when he wrote this, he wrote this in around 2000 and it, in Hungarian, and then it's been translated. He's the director of the Institute of Sociology at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences and a senior scientist of the Gallup organization. Um, and he's been a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center 
for Scholars in Washington and the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences in Stanford. So he's got very strong North American connections as well as um, roots in Central Europe. And he was intrigued by the fact that around the year 2000, when he, when he uh, got writing this, that sociologists had paid very little attention to fear as a really important factor in understanding the world that they would seek to um, analyze as sociologists. So uh, it's a book that's written not just for academics. It is thoroughly researched. Um, he, he basically posits that fear is a central determinant in human life and that fear results in us clothing ourselves, as it were, in a certain world of symbols. So he pays a lot of attention to symbols, to religion, and to, as it were, duplicates of religion. He looks at different images of the world, um, including, you know, the moral universe, the rational world, and so forth. He also investigates all kinds of things in relation to fear. So he looks at the world of play and includes the world of jokes, of trivialities. He explores um, the role of symbols and civilization in general. He looks at the world of beauty. It's a, it's a very wide ranging book that uh, it's very accessible. But if you run across this book, grab it. It's a gem. I've certainly been enjoying reading it. So uh, I would recommend that highly. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Danielle, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure, I, I'm not sure if I've already mentioned this on the podcast before, but it continues to be a pleasure, so I'm justifying it that way by mentioning it again, if I am. Um, my pleasure is a podcast and this podcast it's actually it's this podcast <laughs> <laughs> there I'm done. Um, no, it's relevant to today's topic. However, um, the podcast is called the Magnus archives mm -hmm. and my friend Ruby got me onto it and it's a, it's kind of like what would have been in the style of like a radio drama radio show back in the day before podcasts mm -hmm. became a thing. So it's a, it's a horror podcast. Oh, and the whole premise of the series is, um, basically it's an exploration of fear. So that's why it's relevant today. Mm. Um, and it's just entered its fifth and final season. This it's been a grand, you know, well thought out and planned story arc from the beginning. It started out, I think, in 2016. Wow. Um, but I've only been listening to it recently. I got on the bandwagon late. Um, so it started the final chapter, as it were. And I find that a lot of 
um, media within a horror genre can be uh, a bit exploitative at times. Of its viewers. Of its viewers or listeners or whatever, yeah. And there's ways in which even that can be like done well as like a commentary on the genre or it's just straight up exploitation. Mm. Um, anyway, this podcast very consciously does not do that. Mm. So it's very, and it's very like open about the fact that it wants to explore its own genre as a horror genre and the concept of fear in a non-exploitative manner. Mm. Um, so it means that they try and push themselves to be like really creative with the medium of storytelling yeah. and like an actual attention to the different nuances that different kinds of fears can have. Mm. And the people who are behind it, the guy who writes it, and then um, kind of the main guy who helps direct it are both huge horror and science fiction nerds. Yep. So they know the history really well and like appreciate it as a genre. So it's just like a really well-made thing and everything is getting real apocalyptic and like intense in the final season. So yeah, that's just my pleasure. Well, my pleasure this week is about sci-fi oh. um, and not sci-fi in general. Um, and I'm not even sure if it's a pleasure. I don't think it is a pleasure. I've just been confounded. Oh. You know, they there's a, a remake of uh, Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World mm. uh, remake for TV, which I've never read. So I'm just confounded by the plot. It seems to be making a critique of communism and Marxism. And at the same time, it seems to be using Marxist critique like here, I'll give you an example, right? Hmm. So in the TV show, and I presume in the book, you have this like society where like everyone's like held in common. It's very much like a religion is the opiate of the people type thing. Like okay. they're trying to like get rid of all human attachment um, to make it all in common. And at the same time, uh, they have this ranking system where the like you're just kind of like born into basically like a cast um so it's it's almost like you have the part the communist party and so it feels like a, a critique of communism so i haven't settled completely on what it's doing um like my sense is that it's using marxist critique but i don't know if that marxist critique is aimed at the marxist the marxism that it's um, critiquing mm -hmm. that the whole book is critiquing or TV show in my case um, just like it's aiming at elements of society using Marxist critique and I don't know if that's like an aside um, or it's at the heart of it yet mm -hmm. you know I just keep going back and forth about like what exactly is Aldous Huxley doing mm -hmm. um, and, and it's harder doing it as a TV show because like you can't get into the same like detail as you can in like a novel so i'm just like trying to figure it out but i'm confounded and there's a certain pleasure in being confounded <laughs> and trying to figure it out mm -hmm. and there's just a certain like uh Confounded confoundedness <laughs> <laughs> that's it for our show this week if you'd like to learn more about this course Facing the Darkness, The Human Nature of Evil, taking place online this fall every Thursday from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Or if you'd like to register for the course, 
you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.